Well, good morning. You know, I was thinking, well, first, I had two thoughts, lots of thoughts. Um, I love Preston. Isn't he wonderful? Can we just, like, applaud for Preston? Like, I just, here I am doing announcements. And Lloyd, I mean, we're, we're just spoil, spoiled with the team we have here. Um, I was watching Curtis with the, the, the jingle bells, and I was thinking, like, that's great. It just makes it feel like Advent. And it reminded me of this story I heard from a guy named Charlie where he was at a conference, and they, the, the acoustic guitar player was, was like, I just really need you to come and play the shaker. But the only shaker they had was a banana. And he was up there on stage shaking a banana while thousands of people were worshiping. And afterwards, a woman came on stage to the side and said, I just loved how much enthusiasm you had up there with the banana. She's like, but what were you doing that for? It wasn't miked. So this whole time, he's just standing there shaking a banana. So Curtis got an upgrade. I just, I'm just saying. None of that counts as sermon time. My name's Alistair. If we've never met, I'm the lead pastor here at St. Peter's, at least for now. Uh, the season of Advent. Uh, the season of Advent has a tendency uh, to descend upon a world unprepared. You know, I always feel a sense of surprise when Advent begins. I find myself thinking, we're back here already? And I can also see that this is somehow honoring to the, the season. How could we ever be prepared for what Advent is proclaiming? You know, by way of reminder or introduction, if you've never kept the church calendar, Advent is when we remember that God descended to meet the world in a manger in the person of Jesus Christ. And we remember that Jesus promised to return to establish a new heaven and earth through his perfect justice and judgment. And so this is a season to reflect upon what it means to remain faithful in the middle space between these two appearings of Jesus, his incarnation and return. It's a season marked by an ancient prayer, come Lord Jesus, come. So that's the gist of Advent. Now, Jesus, he knew that his disciples, including us, would need words of comfort to help us through the troubles that we experience in this middle space between his two appearings. So on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his closest friends to say farewell. Jesus knew in the days ahead, their world was about to unravel around them. And so Jesus spoke of a concrete hope. And he gave them his words to become a steady anchor to tether them in the midst of the storm. And so over the next four Sundays of Advent, we're going to jump into four different moments of Jesus's farewell conversation with his disciples. And just full disclosure, because someone got nervous, I'm not saying farewell. This isn't like a sermon series where like, I get back from sabbatical and I'm like, I'm done. This is about the farewell words of Jesus. And so this week, we begin with the passage we read in John 14, verses 1 through 7. Uh, about a decade ago, Julia and I were in New York, and we were on the subway, and I saw this advertisement that just got me so good. It read, in my father's house, there are many rooms, John 14, 1. Clearly, Jesus was not a New Yorker. <laughs> Manhattan mini storage starting at $29. <laughs> So we should probably read our passage once more to put it back in its proper context. Jesus says in John chapter 1 verses 1 or chapter 14 verses 1 through 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself, that where I'm going you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So I have three ideas I want to explore together this morning. Trouble, home, and the way. Trouble, home, and the way. So let's begin with trouble. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. It's more literally, let no one's heart be shaken. Do not let your heart be stirred up, disturbed, unsettled, or thrown into confusion. Why did Jesus say this? Well, he's preparing his disciples to have the rug pulled out from underneath them. He's preparing them for when they find themselves on their backs, stars spinning around their head, world turned upside down. Together, they're on the cusp of a horrendous event. The disciples, they're about to witness Jesus strung up on a tree, an event he foretold, the defining moment of human history that will heal and redeem the world, but nevertheless, a sight that will initially cause them nothing but despair and utter grief before they come to see what it really meant. You see, the disciples, they're going to have good reason for their hearts to be disturbed and thrown into confusion. And in anticipation of how grief-stricken Jesus knows his friends will be, he says, don't let your hearts be shaking. It's comforting, sure. But it's also disconcerting. I mean, when they go through all that's about to go down, how could their hearts be anything but shaken? It would be utterly inhumane or British if they watched the next 24 hours unfold with this stoic emotional distance that had no impact on them. I'm sorry to all the Brits. I love you. I grew up under British rule, so I just know the emotional discomfort we have towards all things uncomfortable. But the disciples, like, of course their hearts are going to be split asunder. So how can Jesus say this to them? Don't let your hearts be troubled. You're going to watch me be crucified. But don't be troubled. Jesus, he's not advocating that the disciples suppress their emotions or push away the grief in what they're about to witness. But he wants them to keep it in context. If you followed through the Gospels at all, you know that leading up to this point, multiple times, on many occasions, Jesus foretold what was going to happen. He told his disciples he's going to be betrayed and handed over to the authorities. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die and be buried, and he's going to be raised. He told them this not once, but twice and three times. And Jesus is telling them if they hold on to what he has already told them, it's possible that their hearts will not be shaken despite being broken. In other words, their hearts can break and will break from what they're about to see. They will be overwhelmed and filled with sorrow, but simultaneously, their hearts can be anchored through the storm by trusting in the words Jesus had already spoken. And so in speaking these words of comfort to them, Jesus isn't inviting some emotional suppression. He's asking his friends to take courage as everything is about to spin into utter confusion. Now, let's not whitewash it. Every single one of them, not just Peter, are about to abandon him. 
Some of them might follow from a safe distance all the way to the cross, but none of them are going to die with, them, with him as they all had just said they would. Their hearts were troubled, which might actually be putting it lightly. They were overwhelmed. They scattered. They gave up. It's over. But that doesn't mean that the words Jesus spoke here, these words of comfort, are without power or application. Now, when all is said, of, said and done, from the vantage point of the resurrection, the disciples obviously looked back on these words and realized, oh, of course, we see it now. Like, why didn't we trust what he said? Because, you know, hindsight is 50-50. But after the resurrection, the same place we stand, they came to see that even in the darkest of nights, light burst forth in glorious array. They lost heart. But now they know it really is possible to not let your heart be troubled. And in a post-resurrection world, we see a transformation and embedding of these words in the life of the early apostles of Jesus. They go on to face trials and toil without their hearts being shaken. We find them singing hymns through persecution, in jail, storms at sea, even being shipwrecked on a random island, singing hymns to God, hearts un shaken. Overwhelmed? Sure. Confused? Absolutely, but not shaken. So what do we do with these words of comfort? Well, I think we live in a world in which it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to wonder, where is Jesus? Now, we have our own experiences of darkness in which it seems like the dawn will never come. And at times, it may seem impossible to actually hold on to what Jesus says here, to not let our hearts be troubled. Because we're living in a world, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel this way, that like, the world just seems to be becoming progressively destabilized. You know, climate events like forest fires and floods, political upheavals, you know, refugees in Belarus and all over, the crisis in Yemen, the ceaseless illumination of injustices and the you know, the sordid history of the residential school system and injustices committed in the name of the church. And then all of this is just the tip of the iceberg. The futurist, yes, that is a thing. The futurist, Bob Johansson, diagnoses the world, the world with this acronym VUCA, I think that's how you say it, V-U-C-A. He says the world is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Sounds about right. And if I'm honest, if I really pay attention to what's happening, if I really actually not just read the news, but sit with the news, at times I weep. And I don't know how to hope. The world seems profoundly dark, and hope can feel out of reach. So how do we not lose heart in this world, at this time, at this place? Well, first, I want to stress this again. Jesus doesn't want us to suppress our emotions or ignore disturbing things. So we get honest about what we're feeling and anchor our hearts to Jesus so they won't be troubled through the storms. So how do we do this? Jesus gets really straightforward with us. Look at verse 2. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's the formula. Jesus, he's not saying, 
believe in an abstract God, the God of the philosophers, the unknowable divine who can only be spoken of by abstraction. That is not what Jesus is getting at. Because he couples believe in God with believe also in me. Our faith is in the God who has revealed himself uniquely and definitively in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has come and he will come again. So despite the sorrow or the state of the world, our hearts can be anchored in the God who came to us and has promised to return to us. But again, how? Because I suspect most of us in this room believe and yet our hearts are still troubled. So let's turn to our second point, home. Uh, Look once more at John 14, verses um, 1 through 4. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. So let's talk about home. Because it's going to help us understand how Jesus anchors our hearts amidst trouble. Jesus, he taps into something deep within the common human experience here. The desire for home. So when you think of home, what comes to mind? I've had a few different homes in my life. Uh, I grew up in Victoria, and my first home, which I don't remember because I only lived there till I was two, uh, was on Clawthorpe Street. And my parents love to tell this story about that home, and you're just going to have to take their word for it because I don't remember any of it. Uh, My dad was at home solo parenting on a weekend when he got caught up watching an Oilers game. Now, to be fair, this was the Gretzky era, so it is understandable that he forgot about his children momentarily. (laughs) But my dad, blessed dad, failed to notice that I wandered into the kitchen, got a steak knife, and then walked out the front door and down the street. (laughs) And a kind neighbor saw a baby in a diaper with a bottle dangling from its mouth, carrying a knife, (laughs) and did not call an exorcist or child services that picked me up and took me back home to my dad. I've never gotten the details about how that event was processed between my two parents, but I suspect it didn't go well for Kevin Bryan Stern. (laughs) Now that is literally all I know about that first home. Sounds like a good place to me. (laughs) Then we lived on Shelbourne Street until I was 20. And then my parents moved to Forest Park Drive. And inevitably, they moved to Sydney, the natural order of things for retirees in Victoria. And sometime in that time frame, I moved from Victoria to study in Vancouver. But Vancouver never felt like home during my undergraduate years. Victoria still felt like home. And then I moved to Orlando, and I was there long enough that it began to feel like home. Then I moved back to Vancouver, and now it feels like home, and this makes up about 20 years of my life. And I've hardly moved around like others have, but I I think we all know this, don't we? Our sense of home changes. Our sense of home changes. For, For me, Victoria has slowly stopped feeling like home. I used to say, oh, I'm going home for the weekend. Even in Orlando, I'd say, oh, I'm going home for the holidays. But now I say, oh, I'm going to see my parents on the island. It hasn't felt like home, and I can't tell you when it happened, but it happened. It's still special, 
still holds many memories, but it's not home. Do you guys know this shift? Are you tracking with this shift? When home stops feeling like home. Or maybe you know the pain and trauma of no place ever feeling like home. And if that's your story, I, I simply want to name it and make space for it here and let you know you're welcome to share that experience with you and we'll walk with you through that. Of course, there is more to home than the place we call home. People can feel like home. It doesn't matter where I am. If I'm with Julia, Ansley, and Maggie, I am home. And this is true of some friends too. And of course, it's, it's true of my extended family. And it's even true of this place. After being away on sabbatical, it felt so good to come home to St. Peter's. We visited lots of great churches during our five and a half months away, but every time we've just felt like we just want to be at St. Peter's. It doesn't even matter if I'm working here. I just want to be here with you because this is what feels like home. And yet, people can stop feeling like home as well. We know this. And I think that actually hurts more acutely than when a place stops feeling like home. And of course, there's a similar ache and a longing that some of us carry The unmet desire to have someone feel like home, but it hasn't happened. And once again, I just want to name that experience and make room for it here. And let you know that your story and your experience matters. I say all of this to point out that home is an intimate thing, isn't it? And it can be a sorrowful thing. It can be a disrupted thing. So when did the place or the person... Stop feeling like home. What happened or hasn't happened that dislodged your sense of home? Uh, A few years ago, I went through a prolonged season of depression. It lasted about three years. And it was very difficult and bleak. And I felt nothing. I just felt nothing. And my sense of home during those days was vague. And my own journey through depression... Uh, has involved many different things, reaching out to uh, my doctor, uh, taking medicine for a season, counseling, reworking key themes in my life story, intentional friendships where I take down the walls and, and I'm known, and discovering language to share my experience and, and exercise and adopting new practices of contemplation and, and gratitude. All of these sort of things slowly helped me navigate my way through this. And before I say anything else, if you're struggling with depression, first off, you don't have to do all of those things. That might sound exhausting to you, and I understand that. Um, And if you're struggling with depression or any other mental health challenge, first and foremost, talk to someone. I know that's the hardest step. Let someone here know. Let me know. Let someone you're sitting with know. Let your community group know. I just want you to know, like in the darkness... You can lose sight of something that we see clearly. Your life matters. You matter. I'm glad you're here. I really am. And so if you want to reach out, we're here. Not to fix you, but to walk with you. To support you. To find and navigate this path together. So in this season of depression, as the clouds changed in my own experience from dark gray to a lighter gray... I was talking to Julia about all of it, and it dawned on me 
in this conversation we had that I'm longing for home, but a home that can't be found here. You see, I'm fortunate, blessed to have a home and a place and a people, but in that moment, I actually said, I just want to go home. And despite the depression in that moment, it was like the clouds parted and a soft ray of of hope came out in that despairing statement. You see, we long for a home that can't be found here, and it aches, it aches, but it aches with hope. You see, it's not in the next physical home or the next relationship or the next adventure. It's not on the untraveled path or the unfulfilled dream. My experience with depression attuned me to this ache And more broadly speaking, the ceaseless troubles of our world constantly remind us, don't they, this world is not our home. So in its fulfillment or in its absence, our sense of home is always incomplete. We carry this sorrow of homesickness that we just reflected on during our creative offering. So when when, when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms... Let's not brush by that. When he says even more that the Father, there's a room prepared for us. He's tapping into something deep. The desire for home. You see, when I said, I want to go home, it names something. It names this desire, but also our hope. There is such thing as a lasting home. Home interrupted in the house of God. So scripture reminds us of this too. Time and time again, that this world is not our home and we're passing through on our way home. Just going to welcome the children. Service is running late. Welcome to the service. You got to hear some sermon. And so we feel homesick from time to time. And we have a legitimate desire or longing for something we can't seem to find. Whatever it may be, we're offered this home, this hope. Jesus is preparing a room in our Father's home for us. He's preparing a room for us. And of course, it's not a literal room. It might be, but it's so much more. It's this promise of a new heavens and a new earth, but I think it's a wonderful metaphor. I like to think of a room prepared, you know, with a personal touch. Uh, The room prepared um, by someone who knows you. You Someone who really knows you, knows how to fluff the pillow just right knows whether you like the sheet tucked tight or not, you know, knows what sort of things to place on the nightstand so that when you get there, you're disarmed and you're present and you can just be home. And we're promised that there is a space for us in the eternal dwelling of God, home uninterrupted in his presence. So I have one last point. I want to make the way. I'm going to speed it up a bit if I can, so slides person, uh, good luck. (laughs) Thomas uh, asks, what should be on all of our minds? Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So if you've read up to John in this point, Jesus just said, I'm about to go, and where I'm going, you cannot come. And now he says, I'm going to prepare a room for you in the Father's house, and you'll know the way. So Thomas asks, as we would ask, no. And Jesus replies in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We've heard this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Now, the main image in what he says here is the way, and so that's what we'll focus on. If his disciples, including us, believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, they already know the way home. They don't need a roadmap or an address. They're on the way already. It's not a literal path. It's a way of life, a commitment to follow Jesus. John Bunyan illustrates this beautifully in Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, it's about a pilgrim named Christian on his journey to the celestial city. And Pilgrim on this journey, he goes through the gate, he's on the way, and on the way, two people climb over the hedge and try to take a shortcut onto the way. And their names are formalist and hypocrisy. And Christian's like, hey, what are you doing? And they say, what's the big deal? Why does it matter how we got on the way so long as we're on the way? Sure, you came through the gate, we tumbled over the wall, but we're on the same way. You see, for them, the way is not about an internal commitment, but external conformity. So, so long as you keep the part, you're on the way. What does it matter? But for Bunyan, these two characters represent the problem, the danger of faith that doesn't penetrate the heart. So formalists and hypocrisy say to Christian, we're in the same way as, as you, so what's the problem? But Christian knows this is impossible because there's a difference between having the appearance of faith and actually internalizing it and living it out. There's a difference between being in the right place and saying the right things and living for the right person. Because the way refers not to a path, but an inner commitment of the heart, a commitment to Jesus. I had this great joke from the Mandalorian set up. I don't have time to make it, so we'll just laugh together. <laughs> Stanley Fish who in this photo is telling the story of when he caught a fish this big, puts it like this. Being in the way, being in the way is paradoxically independent of the way you happen to be in. You will be in the way only if the way is in you. Sounds very Yoda-ish. Let's read it one more time. Being in the way is paradoxically independent of the way you happen to be in. For you will be in the way only if the way is in you. So if anyone walks by this principle, any road they walk on is the way so long as they're walking with Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way. But in our efforts to navigate through the troubles of life, through the storms we face, we can create real mazes for ourselves, can't we? Are any of you good at corn mazes? I'm terrible at them. For all I know, I'm still lost in one. <laughs> you know, similarly, in pursuit of our fulfilling, like fulfilling this longing for home in a troubled world, we get lost because we don't have the vantage point to navigate our way through the toil and the trouble. We can't see if we're going down the wrong direction to a dead end. Sometimes we realize that when it's too late. You see, if we had the right vantage point, we would see that our home is not within the maze that we create for ourselves. Jesus knows we long for home. He knows we can't get lost searching in the maze. And so he says, stop 
looking out at the path before you and start looking at me. Place your faith in me. Believe in me. He knows we can be like formalist and hip hypocrisy, that we want to take shortcuts. We want to do the bare minimum. We're content for glimmers of home here and now instead of the radiance of our home uninterrupted in the presence of God. But there's only one way. There's one way. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And that might make you uncomfortable. And you might not like that I've said it, but I tell you, you have to take it up with Jesus because he's the one who said it. So here is the takeaway. There is trouble in this life and world. And we have a deep ache for home. And Jesus, he speaks right into that ache. And he says, there is a home. The path may be unexpected. It may have twists and turns. We may not be able to see very far ahead or beyond the horizon. All the same, there is a way. Jesus is the way. And he will bring us home. He will welcome us into a home prepared by God himself so that we can enjoy the uninterrupted presence of the eternal love of God now and forever. Friends, this Advent, as the world shifts and rattles around us, let's hold on to this hope of a better home, a lasting home. And may this hope anchor your hearts especially the hearts that are depressed or sorrowful or struggling to make sense of a crumbling world. So let's pray.